All right, welcome everyone. Welcome to Hope University. Our session five tonight, what's our time? We're almost, we'll give people just a couple more minutes to sign in. All right. Um, so you can tell that I am the host tonight. My name is Kathy Copan. I'm the Executive Discipleship Director at, uh, at Committee of Hope. Um, and I'm excited to be here tonight, but uh, I am not as good at this as uh, Pastor Trevor is. So you don't know all the things that Pastor Trevor has been doing in the background each week to handle all of our technology. He's very good at that. So pray for me that everything goes well with our technology tonight. Um, it's, it's a great medium. It's working out really well, but I'm not the expert. So hopefully everything will go well. Um, so tonight, we're going to be hearing in just a little bit from Dr. Mark Whitwer, and I'll introduce him in a minute. Um, first, I'd like to just say a couple things. Um, first of all, uh, Pastor Dale is out on vacation, so we want to just give him that opportunity to get refreshed with his family. Um, and Pastor Trevor is out tonight with his son, Cade, um, doing some special things together. He may hop on with us if he's able. Um, I'm your host. And uh, if you don't know me, I'm the Discipleship Director here at Committee of Hope. And um, when I felt the Lord just kind of giving me this vision for Hope University, I did not imagine that we would uh, be able to get all these fantastic speakers, but I'm so grateful that we have. Have you all been enjoying Hope University? If you have, let's see a show of hands. Um, I think it's been so helpful for me, um, and I hope it has been for you as well. Um, so... Uh, again, pray that nothing goes wrong because I am not the best at this technology thing, but uh, bear with me. So next week, I want to just mention what we've got coming next week. Our speaker will be Dr. Michael Beck. He'll be uh, teaching on fresh expressions of church. Um, Michael Beck has really become an expert in this area. He's a pastor, a published author, and a very sought-after speaker. Uh, fortunately, he's also a close friend of Pastor Trevor's, so we were able to get him, even though he's uh, got a very busy speaking schedule. He has done some very creative things in his church to bring the church out into the community, and so we're excited to learn from him. We had about 10 of us from Community of Hope go and hear him speak last spring at a seminar, and it was excellent. So we're going to be learning about how to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and and um, this, this is something, of course, our church is very committed to. So, and um, our speaker for tonight, I'm super excited uh, to introduce to you Dr. Mark Whitwer. Uh, he'll be teaching us on Christian views of creation and science. Some of you longtime Committee of Hopers may remember Mark. He and his family, um, his wife Andy and his son David, attended our church for about eight years. Um, and then back when Wellington Christian School, where he was teaching, closed, uh, they moved on up to the Orlando area. And um, he teaches there now at Orangewood Christian School. So Mark has um, over 41 years in Christian education, primarily teaching middle school and high school science. And he's done a lot of work nationally in the area of faith and science uh, for um, Christian teaching. Mark has a PhD in religion and society studies focusing on Christian education. And um, Mark also studied at Grace Theological Seminary in Indiana. And he earned a master's of secondary school science from Villanova University. 
Um, so Mark is really uh, uniquely qualified with this great combination of education in both scripture as well as science. And so this is why we asked him to speak on this important topic tonight. You will see that Mark loves the Lord, he loves God's word, and he knows science. And so this is great. There's a lot more I could say about Mark's credentials, but I just want to say a personal note. Uh, Mark was very instrumental in my own personal journey in this area and in our family. Uh, a little over 10 years ago, uh, really my lack of understanding on this topic was part of what was making it difficult for my two sons to believe in the Christian faith. And so I asked Mark for help, and he taught me so much. Um, he also mentored our youngest son, Benji, meeting with him every other week at Starbucks to help him on his faith journey, and I'll be forever grateful for that. So having two sons who um, are into science, I believe it's really important for every one of us uh, to understand at least enough in this area that we don't make it hard for our kids to believe, our kids, our grandkids, um, other kids that we are in contact with to believe. So. Um, I'm excited to have Mark speak tonight. Um, let's just pray as we get started, and then I'll give the floor to, to Mark, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for open hearts and open minds as we hear uh, what Mark has to teach us. Uh, I'm grateful for his love for you and his knowledge and education uh, in science and in the Bible. And I pray that each one of us would come ready to learn and to listen. Um, even as Pastor Dale shared with us this past weekend. Um, thank you so much for what uh, you have to teach us tonight. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So now if you'll put your hands together, let's, uh, let's give Mark what we're uh, welcome to Community of Hope. <laughs> thank you, Kathy. It is wonderful to be with you all. Uh, you know, teaching in Christian schools for a long time, uh, and science, this origins issue, you know, the age of the earth, the evolution creation discussion, it's one of those topics that you can't escape from. So very early on, I realized this is something I was going to have to really think through in order to help my students and also just to feel sort of my own questions, you know, as a young teacher in my 20s. Um, so it is something I've thought a lot about for a long time, written about, prepared lessons for my students about and over time have come to see that it's one of these things that in, in my opinion, and of course I could be wrong, I don't claim to be the Holy Spirit, but in my opinion, it's one of these things that we, we disagree about um, the details. We don't disagree about the central message as you'll see in a moment, but we disagree about the details. And in my mind, that's probably okay. I think that God wants to do some interesting things in the church among us especially in the things we disagree about. And there are many secondary issues, you call them gray areas, things that people who love the Lord and believe the Bible is God's word, um, believe Jesus walked on water. You know, we're not trying to walk away from the miraculous. Um, we're not trying to compromise and just get along with culture. And yet we don't agree about some of these details. And so what is that all about? If the Holy Spirit's supposed to lead us into all truth, then how come we don't all agree? That's something my wife and I have talked about a lot over the years. Perhaps you have asked that question of yourself too. I think one of the, I don't have the answer, but I think one of the um, benefits perhaps, maybe one reason that God doesn't have us all, we have unity, but not uniformity on some of those details. 
Um, I think maybe one reason is that we're supposed to be loving each other. That's supposed to be what characterizes the church, you know. Uh, we want to be people of whom the world says, behold, how they love one another. And these kinds of things give us an opportunity to do that. So we're going to unpack that a little bit tonight. What might that look like? Um, the goal of tonight's um, session, my conversation with you, is to give you some information that you might not have. I hope that it informs you in ways that are useful and helpful. But my main goal is that we see that we don't have to be right to be right. We don't have to have the right view on this. I mean, it'd be wonderful if we did. Um, we can always assume that our view is the right view, but with so much disagreement about some of the details among people who are well-trained in the sciences and theology and who love the Lord with all their heart, um, maybe it's a little tough for us to say for sure we have the right view and be too adamant about it. At the very least, regardless of that, well, we can certainly have our convictions. We're going to disagree. That's all right. And we can have discussions. That's all right. We don't have to get, we don't have to argue, but we can certainly have debates. But the bottom line is, can we love one another while we're doing that? I think that's a really good question for the church right now in this debate, among others, because often that often happens, but it often doesn't happen. And you might have been part of conversations at some point where the, the conversation just sort of turned uncomfortable. I mean, really uncomfortable because Maybe, maybe you yourself were really struggling. You wanted to be kind to this person you were talking to that held a very different view than you did about some of these things, evolution perhaps. But you just couldn't fathom how they could possibly be a Christian and think that. And you're conflicted, and, or maybe worse, you've been in conversations where somebody got uh, very aggressive with you about it, and, and that doesn't move us forward too well. And I don't necessarily mean to move us forward toward, a, toward all agreeing on the same thing, trying to convince one another that our view is right. There's a place for that. There's a place for conversation. There's a place for changing our minds. Um, but we need to be loving one another in the process. That's very important to me. And so you'll see that as we go along. I'm going to share some slides with you to organize our conversation a little bit and allow you to not just have to listen to me uh, talk. It's hard to follow, you know, for any length of time, somebody just talking and they say something that gets you thinking and then you've missed the next thing they've said. So I'm going to share a screen with you. Some PowerPoint slides that will help to organize our conversation. So let me get that to full screen. Here we go. So we're talking about Christian views of creation. So you notice right away, as I like to say to my students, we're not going to make this too easy. We're not talking about us and them. You know, those people fill in whatever blank you like, atheists, maybe uh, liberals, you know, liberal theology, those people who don't think like we do, who don't believe the Bible, who don't, you know, we're not going to make it easy. We're not going to say, let's talk about the views that all kinds of people hold, and then we can just sit back smugly and sort of feel like, well, because we're Christians, then of course, you know, we don't have their problems with struggling with this. This is Christian views of creation. We don't all agree on these things. And that alone is a surprise to some of my students, and perhaps it is to you, that within the evangelical community, that is us, not them, those of us who believe Jesus walked on water, for example, we believe in miracles, um, we don't agree about some of this. So here's, the, here's sort of the big takeaway from tonight. This is where I'm going to be unpacking these four things the entire time, really, in different ways. The first is we all agree, all Christians agree that God created everything. 
There is no Christian, nobody who believes the Bible is the word of God, talking about when I say Christian, I'm using that word to mean us, you know, evangelicals is a term that gets used for that. Talking about people who believe Jesus walked on water and he rose from the dead and we're saved because of Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, We believe the Bible is the word of God. Well, nobody in that camp thinks we're here by accident, including those who are comfortable with evolutionary theory. We're not an accident. So that's very important. But obviously, you can see in the second bullet, I'm sure you've already read it by now, unless your screen is very small. Uh, By the way, I will apologize ahead of time for reading these screens. I often tell my students that when I put screens up in class, I'm not going to read every word on these screens. I'm going to talk about them because I'm assuming that by the time I've finished explaining the first one, they've read them all anyway. But I'm not going to assume that tonight because some of you might be watching on small screens. You might even be watching this on a phone or something of that sort. So I'm going to read them, and I apologize if that um, seems a little pedantic or slow for you. So the second bullet there is that we, we might agree that God's created everything. We're all fully agreed on that. Nobody thinks things are here by accident, especially not us. But we don't agree about how and when. I'd call those secondary issues. Now, there are some Christians that might disagree. They'd say, well, it's not a secondary issue, is it? Because it really goes to how you understand the Bible, right? If you believe the Bible's the word of God, then how could you say that how and when God created are secondary if the Bible makes those things clear? And so, as you'll see as we go on, um, that's that's a defensible position. I respect that. It's a high view of God's word. Um, However, I think it is a secondary issue. I think there are a lot of things in the Bible that are not crystal clear to all of us who believe the Bible is God's word. And those things, I assume, if they're not crystal clear, they're not crystal clear for a reason. The things that deal with salvation, those are crystal clear. I think that's very interesting and an evidence of the inspiration of Scripture, that the things that are critical for your salvation— Evangelicals, we don't argue about. Those things are in the creeds. Um, It's these other things. So I call them secondary issues. But if you are squirming a little bit already because of my use of that term, then I understand that and I respect that. And I'm not going to be trampling all over your sensitivities here. Um, I'm just suggesting that we do disagree about these things. And I just want to suggest, I'm not going to pound you with this, suggest that that might be okay. It might be okay. It just might be. Just just have that as a possibility in your mind. The third thing there that all these Christian views of creation we're going to look at, it's very important that we recognize, it took me a long time to see this myself years and years ago, they're all efforts to give God glory in these things. Every one of us with our different views, we're disagreeing about the details, but we are all agreeing that we want to see God magnified. We want to see how God is honored in this. We don't want God to be unemployed, no role for him in creation. Well, nobody takes that position, although sometimes we assume some of these views do, but they don't. And so we all want God to be glorified. We all want people to be able to trust the Bible. And we come down to different places as to what that might look like. What's the best way to do that? But we all want the same things. I I find that fascinating. Um, I wish I had realized that very early on. It would have made it easier for me not to be I will confess and embarrassed by it when I was younger, um, smug sometimes, sometimes too pushy on these subjects because I just sort of assumed that everyone ought to agree with me. I thought I was right. <laughs> Some of that is perhaps just being young, but, um, but that's not something I'm proud of. 
And I think maybe if I'd realized that everybody was trying to honor God, really, with their whole hearts in this, it might have helped. So the last thing there sort of spins out of that, doesn't it? That what matters most in this controversy is not the fact that we disagree and we somehow need to convince everybody else to agree with us, but that it's how we disagree. We need to disagree respectfully and charitably. We need to love one another. We need to treat one another like we want to be treated. So the three main views that we're going to talk about are often called, generally they're called by these terms. Sometimes you'll run into different labels. Young Earth Creation, which basically says, we'll give you a thumbnail sketch. We're going to look at it in more detail later, of course. But so in case you're new to this entire conversation, I'll give you a little bit of a context. Young Earth Creationists would say, that the earth is about 10,000 years old. Some will go as low as, say, 6,000, and maybe others would go up as high as maybe 20. So I picked 10 because it's an easy number to remember and it's sort of in the middle, kind of. So 10,000 years old, roughly. It doesn't really matter whether it's 6 or 10 or 20. It's still about a million. I mean, it is about a million times younger than the other two views would say. So the difference is clear regardless. So they'd say the earth is young created relatively recently, thousands of years ago, not, not billions, and biological evolution, uh, the idea that all living things on the earth have come from a common ancestor, is nonsense. And old earth creationists would agree with the young earth creationists about biological evolution. Uh, excuse me, hit my computer. They'd say it's nonsense, um, but they don't agree about the age of the earth. They think that the evidence we have from science is overwhelmingly clear and that the Bible doesn't rule out uh, the world, the solar system, and the earth, of course, part of it, being about four and a half billion years old. So obviously there's a disagreement there with the young earth creationists, but only about the age of the earth, really. And then evolutionary creation, they're perfectly comfortable with what you'd consider the standard model of the age of the earth, what I just said, four and a half billion years old and and biological evolution being the process that God used to create all this wonderful diversity we see around us. Um, and so that's where they're coming from. Now, that last thing you see on the screen, intelligent design, it bears mentioning because you've heard the term probably, um, it's a movement rather than a position. It's not one of the three main views, so we're not going to unpack it at length tonight, but it is something you've heard about there are people from all three of those views, young earth creationism, old earth creationism, evolutionary creationism. There are people from all three of those views in the intelligent design movement. The one thing that all of them, all of them have in common, they believe that we should be able to, and they believe we can, find empirical evidence, you know, scientific evidence, often mathematical as well, but empirical evidence, you know, hard evidence that a creator is behind all this. Not simply saying, you know, he who has eyes to see, let him see. You know, look at the wonder all around us and you can say, oh my goodness, you know, there's got to be a, there's got to be a creator behind this. It's just too much to believe this all happened by accident. That's not what they're talking about. All of us would agree on that, by the way. All of us, all three of those views would agree on that much. But the intelligent design movement says we ought to be able to do uh, research that should be able to uncover evidence that, is hard evidence that there's a creator back there. And they don't even insist it be the creator, that the creator be the God of the Bible. They make a point of that, trying to be somewhat nonpartisan about it, although I think most of them are most of them are Christians, and most of them are not evolutionary creationists, although some are. So it's an intelligent, um, it's an interesting, the intelligent design movement's an interesting movement. 
Um, they're, the only thing they really have in common, though, is that commitment that we ought to be able to find hard evidence that there's a creator out there. And that flies in the face of a lot of Christians who are scientists thinking that God can very easily use natural processes and not betray his hand, so to speak. And so they'll say, well, hold on to the folks in the intelligent design movement. They'll say, hold on. Is what you're kind of getting at that we ought to have some gaps in our knowledge? And if we can't explain those gaps, and we all have, always have gaps in our knowledge, of course, that it's those gaps where God shows up. Like, that's the hard evidence that we say, well, we can't get from this step to that step. So that means there must be a God. Is that what you're saying? In other words, are you suggesting that we have a God of the gaps kind of thing, that the, the weaker our evidence for natural processes being God's tools, the stronger our evidence that it had to be miracles at some point, the stronger our evidence for God? Is, is that what you're saying? And the intelligent design movement has a little trouble answering that. I mean, in fairness to them, they would strongly object to the being called a God of the gaps movement. But it is what it seems like to many, many, many outside of that movement. So it's an interesting conversation, and they're doing some neat things, and I wish them well. Um, but it's not something that it's not something that all Christian scientists jump up and down about for that reason. They they feel like, rightly or wrongly, um, those who are not in the movement kind of feel like we're trying to argue from our ignorance. And as the years go by, it seems like the gaps in our knowledge keep closing. You know, slowly closing. And does that mean that we have less and less of this empirical evidence for God's hand behind everything? And it just makes them uncomfortable. So that's all I'll say about the intelligent design movement. It's a neat thing. It's got an interesting project. Um, as I said, I wish them well. They've produced some interesting work. Um, but there are real mixed feelings about whether it's going to get traction o- over time. So we'll leave it at that. So young earth creation, old earth creation, and evolutionary creation are the three views that we're going to talk about. And as I said, there are members from all three of those views in the intelligent design movement. So that's why it's not a separate view. Now, this next slide is very, very important to me. And if you don't mind, just pause for a moment. Close your eyes if it helps you. I'm going to. Just pray silently as I say it out loud that the Lord would help us to to sort of see that even though we might have very strong feelings about these things and other things that Christians disagree about, that he'd help us to see maybe in a new way how to love one another anyway. Just pray that, would you? It's so important. It's the main thing we want to walk away with tonight, as well as a lot of good information. The Lord would help us to love one another well, in the midst of our disagreements, in the midst of them, not once they've gone away, (laughs) not as a way of getting them removed, in the midst. So it's fortunate for us that we have, fortunate for us, as if God didn't have this in mind all along, which of course he did. God has given us graciously in the New Testament a really good example of how Christians can deal with disagreements about secondary issues. The early church, as many of you are aware, was made up of Jewish Christians and a lot of Gentile Christians, non-Jews, Greeks, Romans, and others. As the church grew, an increasing number of people from sort of the majority Greek-Roman, Greco-Roman culture in the, around the Mediterranean uh, were coming to Christ, and, and Jews were in some of those groups, but 
not always in the majority, sometimes it's quite a mix. This automatically created a stage where there could be some real differences about things. The Jews had been raised with very strict views about what they ate. There are dietary laws in the Old Testament. Certain things were not, not they weren't, weren't kosher. They weren't clean. You weren't allowed to eat them. And they came into Christianity, and those kinds of things were not such a big deal anymore. But the question is, should they be? I mean, Ought we to assume as ought we to assume as Jewish Christians that we're still keeping the Jewish dietary law and other laws too, maybe certain festivals and holy days and things like that? I mean, aren't we sort of completed Jews as Christians? And so doesn't that mean that our Jewishness is still very much an important part of so then that raised all sort of questions for the Gentiles. Should the Gentiles be required to keep these dietary laws? And in particular, there was another twist to this. It wasn't just the Jewish dietary laws. It was also that there was a custom in many, in a lot of this Roman Greek culture, the meat that was for sale in the markets was often ceremonially, if, well, at least ceremonially, and maybe even a little more than that, dedicated to idols. A lot of this meat had been sacrifices that were brought to the pagan temples and some of it would be burned and offered to the, uh, to the pagan idols. And that that wasn't burned and wasn't perhaps eaten by the priest would go to the marketplace and could be sold. And from what I understand, I'm no expert on this, but from what I understand, some of that meat might have been a little cheaper than some of the meat they might have gotten otherwise. And so you can understand the, uh, the pressure now. Here are these new Christians. Let's think of Gentile Christians, non-Jews. They never worried about what they ate. Um, and they were used to eating this meat that was offered to idols. They became Christians and realized that the idols were nothing, just, you know, statues made of stone and metal and wood, no big deal. And so it didn't bother them. But to the Jews, this idea of eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol was a problem. And so you had something here where that's just enough to get us barely to understand what was going on there. But you can see how this stage is set for some pretty strong emotions. Surely God wants us to look, the Bible says all this stuff about diet, and certainly we shouldn't be participating in idol worship. And isn't that what you're doing, really, when you eat that meat? And others would say, no. So let me read this verse in Romans 14, 1 through 4, in case your screen is too small to have seen it. And here's Paul's advice in this situation. Uh, this is one of a couple passages in the New Testament, but, and there are others, too, that speak to these things, but they're two longer passages that go into some detail on these things. And this is one of them. Romans 14, 1 through 4. It says, except the one whose faith is weak. Now, it's interesting that we all tend to think of ourselves as the ones with the stronger faith, and the other is the weak one. So this speaks to all of us, right? We don't have to figure out which category we're in. Accept them. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. The idol is nothing. This is no big deal. We have the freedom to eat that meat. There's, we don't have to be worried about it. We don't have to be hung up about it. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another's whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. They just feel guilty. They feel like it would not please Christ when they eat that meat or something else. The one who eats, and here's the key, and this speaks to all of us. 
at one time or another, we're probably in both of these categories that are coming up or tempted to be. I certainly have been. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who doesn't. Oh, you're just hung up. You're so legalistic. You're so narrow-minded. You're just reading the Bible way too woodenly, right? Have those thoughts ever crossed your mind in some of these issues? And most of us, they have. Um, We mustn't do that. The one who feels free in a certain area must not treat with contempt the ones who don't. And the one who doesn't eat everything must not judge the one who does. You are just taking a real weak view towards Scripture. You're just on a slippery slope. Who knows where this is going to lead you? Why are you compromising here? You're just trying to make everybody around you happy, trying to fit in with culture? Why don't you just stand up for Jesus? And you can hear the conversations, right? So we're not to treat with contempt those who have reservations about things we don't. And we're not to judge those who don't have reservations about things we do. Why? Last line there. For God has accepted them. You know, the passage, passage goes on, and, and there's more to it. You can read this in Romans 14. Who are we to judge another person's servant? But it's really hard not to when we feel strongly convicted that the Bible says we shouldn't do X, and yet we see a brother or someone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ that seems to have no problem with that. And we need to heed Paul's admonition here. Paul was an apostle. He could have just said, hey, guys, here's the way it is. And he did almost do that at one point in scripture, but he didn't take the next step. He said, I myself am convinced. And he told him what he thought was the case about these issues. But then he turns right around and he doesn't say like he does about some other things. So therefore do this and do that. He had apostolic authority. He could tell them what to do, what to think, what to, but he said, you've got to become fully convinced in your own mind, what Jesus wants you to do. And then we've got to accept one another because we're all trying to please Christ. And we need to be willing to limit our own freedom sometimes to engage in things that we have no problem with if it's going to hurt the people around us. Paul's advice wasn't fix the problem. All of you need to agree about which is the right position here. Paul's advice was love each other in the middle of it. I love that. I just love it. And it's so very difficult, which is maybe why God left us with some of these challenges. So there are three keys to understanding. Notice we're not trying to settle understand our disagreements about origins. Um, I have found over the years that these are really, these assumptions are in the back of our mind. What I say on the slide is the three questions below are often at the back of our mind when we think about origins. However, each one of them is the wrong question. Each one of them is assuming something false. And I've done this. I've asked myself these questions and, and realized over time that It was the wrong question. I was setting myself up in a way. It's a false dichotomy is the fancy term that gets used. It's an artificial distinction between two things. You don't really only have two choices. Um, It's like the old joke about asking somebody, you know, have you quit cheating on your taxes? How do you answer that? No matter how you answer that, you lose, right? It's the wrong question. And the first question is, well, if we're talking about, say, the creation of uh, birds, was it a natural process? Or did God do it? Wrong question, as you'll see. It's a good question, but it's the wrong one. The motive behind the question is excellent, but it's the wrong way to ask it because it sets you up for a fall, a false dichotomy. And the second one, is Genesis true or not? 
Well, we all believe the Bible is the word of God. So where's that come from? What do we mean by that? Uh, which should I trust more, science or the Bible? Well, for one thing, here's the problem with that question. Just one thing that's wrong with it. Science is a human construct, right? Our understanding of nature. But the Bible is, the, is a thing. It's not about comparing science and the Bible. It's about comparing our understanding of the Bible, theology, with science, right? It's nature and the Bible. Those are the things God made that we can learn from. Our understanding of them is what's really at issue here, and that's not science. I mean, it is science, but it's not the Bible. It's theology. It's our understanding. So moving on, you'll see how this unpacks as we go on. First of all, this question about is it a natural process or did God do it? <laughs> Saying something's a natural process does not mean it's a no-God process. Natural process is a term we use for something that we can study scientifically. It's re it repeats itself. There are patterns, usually mathematical patterns, which is kind of cool. That's a whole other conversation. Why is the universe so mathematically intelligible? Why did God do that? It's a good thing, um, but that's another subject. So natural process is not a no-God process. Just to say, here's how God did it. For example, rainfall. There might have been a time in history when rainfall was considered a miracle, or at least nobody thought about it in those terms. They just assumed the gods did it. They had no idea how. Now we know how. We know the steps. We do, not that there aren't things we can still learn about the details, but we know the process. We know where a rain comes from. So look at this verse in Jeremiah 14. I love it. Jeremiah 14, 22. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Well, none of us today would say that, so we kind of laugh and keep reading. And the next line is exactly what we want to say. Do the skies themselves send down showers? It just happens by itself, right? Natural processes, it just happens by itself. No need for God. Well, the verse rather answers that. No, it's you, O Lord our God. Therefore, our hope is in you because you're the one who does all this. The Bible gives God full credit for natural processes. Somebody has described it this way. God, in many, many things in nature, not everything because we believe Jesus walked on water. That was, that was obviously Jesus putting supernatural power on display. But in many, many things like rainfall, God is the, uh, the choreographer behind the curtain. Think of a ballet, you know, you're going to see the nutcracker. And there's a whole lot of planning going on as to where each person is on that stage and when they do what. It's not just happening on its own, but it looks like it. And so God is the choreographer behind the curtain. Natural processes do not leave God out. They show his genius. And the next verse, Psalm 104, uh, verse 21, <laughs> the lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. Now, we all know how lions get their food. Seek their food from God. So again, God's been given credit for natural processes. Now, the next question then, so to ask the question, you know, is it a natural process or is it God? You can see it's the wrong question. It's God either way. Some people have serious reservations about evolution, and you can have serious reservations about evolution for a lot of reasons, but this should not be one of them. One of the objections that I'll hear from folks about evolutionary theory is that essentially it leaves God unemployed. Oh, the evolutionists are just saying it'll happen by itself. No. 
Now, it might be the non-Christian evolutionists would be saying that, but then that's a non-Christian. They're not going to be uh, including God in their thinking in many things at all, right? But there's no Christian who believes that God used evolution, and there are many, many of them, that would say that it all just happened by itself. No way. God, if evolution is so complicated, there's no way it could possibly work if God weren't behind it. I know of one college professor who said that he used to use that as a, as a witnessing tool, sharing the gospel with his non-Christian uh, colleagues when he'd be at conferences and things, and he'd be talking to others. He was a science professor at a Christian college. He'd be talking to others, said, I didn't even bother wasting time arguing about evolution. I would just say, from what you know about the evolutionary process, it's incredibly complex. He would say, do you really, in your heart of hearts, do you really believe that could all just happen by itself? And that's where he would start. So yeah, there's no Christian evolutionist who thinks that natural processes leave God out. So this next one then, does is Genesis true or not? Well, again, wrong question, because all of us believe it's true. And so I'm going to read these uh, pretty carefully because we don't have time to unpack this at length. You're going to be getting a uh, resource sheet. Um, Kathy will be emailing it to you within the next couple of days or so. You'll be getting a resource sheet that I put together because there's just so many things that come up in a conversation like this. And in a short talk like we have, there's not really time to unpack it all. And I don't want to leave you feeling like, oh my goodness, I've got more questions now than I did when we started. So I put a resource sheet together that has some book titles you could read and other things that I hope would be helpful. And there are some books that specifically address this question uh, from evangelicals. How can we say we have a high view of scripture, we believe the Bible is the word of God, and, and not agree about what Genesis is saying? It's an excellent question, and there are excellent answers. We can't all agree about exactly how to answer it but we're all coming at it from the same place, which is kind of what I summarize here. So we'll start by saying the question that we evangelicals face is not, is Genesis true? We all agree that it is. The question is, what about what's there is true? In other words, what is the inspired message? We believe it's inspired. It's the word of God. What's the message? The Bible talks, for example, um, Joshua chapter 10, you know, the Bible talks about the sun rising and setting. Joshua chapter 10, there's a miracle where there, Joshua's long day, it's called, where it says uh, in verse 14, I think, Joshua 10, 14, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky. And it says two or three times in that passage that the sun stopped. Well, it's describing how it looks, of course. We still say the sun rises and sets, but we all know that's not what's happening. The earth is turning. Is the Bible teaching in that passage that the sun's moving across the sky? For a long, 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 long time, we all assumed it was. And well, now we know better. Um, does that mean that that's not telling the truth? Well, no, not at all. So the question is, how would the original audience have understood this? Would they have understood Genesis 1, let's say, if we're talking about that passage, would they have understood it the way you would as a 20th, 21st century um, Westerner reading it translated in English? And we have found that that's probably not the case. Probably not the case. There's some disagreement about the details, as I said, but probably not the case. In the last 150 years or so, we have found lots, I mean, over a million. It's amazing. Uh, ancient texts that we didn't have. The early church didn't have these. We can't go back to uh, the early church fathers or to Calvin or Luther and say, well, let them be an authoritative uh, voice on this. We can listen to them. They have good things to say, but they didn't have these texts. So just in the last 150 years or so, we've got about a million ancient texts from the Near East and they talking about all kinds of things, bills of sale, personal letters, you name it. 
But the point is they give us a glimpse into how the culture thought. You can read a lot of stuff about how they thought and how they expressed themselves and how they used numbers and so on and so on. And they give us insights into the culture and the mindset of the people in Bible times. And there are significant differences between the way the Bible's original audiences thought and the way we do. So that doesn't mean that you can't read your Bible and say, well, I have no idea what this means. Uh, like I said before, the things that matter most are clear. That is amazing to me, really, when you consider how old this book is and written to cultures different than our own. And yet here we are. It's supernatural. But could there be that we read something like that sun stopping in the middle of the sky or Jesus saying the mustard seed is the smallest seed? I mean, he knew it wasn't. Orchid seeds are smaller and they knew about orchids. So what was he doing? If I tell my students, I've told you a million times, be sure to sign the safety section of your lab sheet. They don't jump up and say, Dr. Whitmer, you haven't told us a million times. You're a liar. <laughs> we all know what I'm saying, right? And this is what we're getting glimpses into with the ancient cultures. They say things in certain ways and do things in certain ways that don't mesh with the way we would do them. And we read these things and we think, oh, that must mean X. But to them, it might not have. So that's why Christians wind up disagreeing about exactly how to understand some of the things in Genesis. It's uh, not as easy as it sounds. doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means we have to be humble and willing to listen to others. And, and this is the important point, we're not necessarily trying to solve this problem tonight in a short talk. We're trying to say, you can love your neighbor who disagrees with you. It could be that they know a lot more about the subject than you realize they do, and they just simply disagree. It might not be that you need to straighten them out, you know, they don't know what you know. It might really be that it's just complicated. Um, I taught with a teacher for years, uh, some of you that uh, were familiar with Wellington Christian School would have known him. And he said to me once, we were talking about these origins things, he would tell his students that there are mysteries here. That's not a bad line. It's true. There are mysteries here. Doesn't mean we can't come to our own convictions. Just means we need to hold them with an open hand, humbly. So we can't assume that our first impression of what a passage is teaching would agree with what people in the ancient Near East would have heard when they first read it. And that's a cardinal rule of Bible interpretation is what did it mean to the original hearers? So evangelical scholars just disagree about what kind of literature the early chapters of Genesis are. We sometimes assume, well, of course, it's just sort of like a diary. If I was sitting there with a movie camera and filmed it, it would all, well, that's one type of literature. They, they don't all agree maybe the majority even disagree with that these days, and they're evangelicals now. I'm not talking about liberal theologians who don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, that sort of thing. And they might not all agree with that it's simply history. Say, I think it goes beyond that. So, and we'll talk about that a little bit. So many think the ancients had very little interest in how and when God created. And God isn't taught, he's, God's given us the Bible, it's for us, but it's not written to us. It's like reading somebody else's mail. And so we do our best to understand it, and it's life-giving, but it's not written to us. It was written to them. And so God's speaking, these scholars would often say, God's speaking in their way of speaking, their language, into their culture. They would have understood what he meant, and we do our best to figure it out. And sometimes it's not the first thing that occurs to us when we read it, and sometimes it is. So God was addressing their questions, like, who's in charge? Why are we here? Why is the world such a mess? Notice those aren't scientific questions. It just didn't interest them. We have, no, we have no evidence that that was of great interest to them. 
So God did this using a creation narrative that is very familiar in the ancient Near East. The creation story in Genesis is very similar to other creation stories in the ancient Near East. And one can argue a couple of ways as to why that is, of course. Um, But the important thing is, it's radically different in its theology. It teaches radically different things about God and man. So some scholars suggest, what I'm trying to do is give you a feel for how evangelicals take some views on some of these things that you might not have thought about before. It doesn't mean they're right. It just means they believe the Bible's the word of God, just like you do. And they've, and they've done their homework. Um, and they're saying, you know, it could be, if we're desperate to know what God means, it could be that he meant this. And so these radical changes in theology, it could be that what Genesis is all about is telling the old creation story, so to speak, you know, the one that ancient Near Easterners were familiar with, roughly, the rough frame of it. It was a story they knew, kind of like if somebody told you a fairy tale, uh, uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Somebody started to tell you that story and change certain things in it, you catch it right away because you know the story. And if they change things, you'd say, what? Hold it. And so this was an ancient Near Eastern creation story, some would suggest, evangelical scholars. That's the kind of literature it is, they would say. And what God did was had Moses radically change the theology. One God instead of many. Humans created for fellowship with God instead of to be slaves for the gods. Creation by one God in complete control who just speaks and it happens, as opposed to some of these ancient Near Eastern stories where the gods have a battle and the earth is created out of the dead body of one of them and all this weird stuff. So the basic frame of the story was familiar, but boy, was the theology different. And that was the point, these scholars would say. Again, not even encouraging you to agree with that, just saying, this is what we, evangelicals, you know, not them, these are some of the things we struggle with in trying to understand these details in Genesis and elsewhere in scripture. Um, and so it's, it's worth a listen. If this is something that really interests you, it's worth reading some of those things on the resource sheet and seeing what you think. You might find that your views change on this. You might find they don't. Um, I don't think either of those is a problem. You might find that you can say about your Christian brothers and sisters who disagree with you about some of this. Uh, okay. I see where they're coming from. I don't agree with it. I still think it's nuts, but I see where they're coming from. I, I, I see how they think this is really what the Bible's teaching. I think they're wrong, but I don't think they're not caring. That's a win in my mind for all of us. That's a win. Um, so evangelical scholars all agree that the ancient Israelites would have understood Genesis 1, 1 through 11 to be teaching important theology. Genesis chapters 1 through 11, those early chapters with the creation story and Noah's flood and Tower of Babel and all that. They would say it's teaching really important theology. That's why God put it there. But they don't agree uh, that those Israelites would have thought of it as history. And we just assume it. So it's interesting. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that all three views think Genesis is the word of God. And it's true. The debate is how to understand it. It's how to understand what God's teaching, not whether God is teaching. So let's pause again for a moment. Um, Doing what I said earlier, right? The most important thing is how we disagree. Um, And again, close your eyes if it's helpful to you. I'm going to close mine. And just pray with me for a moment. Pray that the Lord would 
help you, if, especially if this is hard for you, if this is a hard conversation because you feel strongly about one of these views and you just don't see how Christians could hold the others, or maybe for most of you, it's just sort of new ground. In either case, pray the Lord would help you to be respectful and charitable. The next time you have a conversation about this with someone, maybe someone in your family, that the Lord will just help you not to cave, not to not think, not to have a view, but simply to love them as you disagree. Because you realize that there's room for disagreement among us as evangelicals and still believe it's the word of God and we want to honor it. So just ask God to do that for you. And I ask God to do that for me all the time. I I constantly need help with this. I want to be... I want to be like Jesus to people. I don't want to try to make them like me. And I don't want to assume that them thinking like me means they'd be thinking like Jesus. All right, move on. So, last thing here to think about. This is really, really useful, has been to me. There are two sort of large perspectives that drive these three views. You're going to see that as we look at the views in detail in a minute. The first position, and you're going to see yourself probably in one of these. Um, I would guess that most of you will probably read these and say, okay, yeah, that's sort of me. The first view is to say, the Bible is more reliable source of information than nature is about how and when God created. We should be looking first to the Bible, especially because nature was cursed after the fall. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be misunderstood. It's not like it was originally how do we know we're not misinterpreting things left and right? Where with the Bible, it's easier. Uh, it's clearer. And so, and the Holy Spirit can lead us into all truth. So to avoid error, the primary filter we ought to use when we're interpreting evidence from nature should be, what's the Bible teach? So that's the first position. That would be the young earth creationist position. And that would also be, in some ways, the old earth creationist position. They take that position on some things, biological evolution but not on other things, the age of the earth and the universe. So that's very interesting, isn't it? They're split. And then the second one here, both the Bible and nature, God's word and God's world, are equally reliable sources of truth when we study them carefully. They will tell us true things, but we can misunderstand either one. So when our evidence from the Bible and from nature seem to contradict, then we need to study more. Um, We need to be open, humbly, open, which is hard. It's so easy to say. It's so hard to do. Uh, Open to the possibility that we're misunderstanding one or both. So those are two sort of orientations. Sometimes, and in some things, all of us probably jump to one or the other of those. We use those sort of filters differently in different contexts. But in this origins context, this drives a lot of these two views, and it produces a lot of heat. Because if you're disagreeing with somebody about your view on the age of the earth, let's say, just take that one. Um, and in the back of your mind, it's that the Bible is so clear and they're not agreeing with you. Then, of course, it's, you're going to assume it's because they're taking a light view of the Bible. And then that becomes the issue, right? That's much more important than just their view on the age of the earth. Now we're talking about the Bible. But if you realize that what you're doing is what's up here, not to say that that's wrong, just that you're saying the Bible's the key thing. And I understand that more easily than I do the science. So I'm going to go there first. 
they might be doing exactly the opposite. They might be down here and saying, I'm taking the science real seriously here. I think this is from God too. Nature is from God. And I don't think we're any better at understanding the Bible than we are nature. I think we can misunderstand either one. And they're not saying that. They might not even realize that's how they think, but that's what's in their mind. And that is going to create tension between you and you don't even know why. So realizing these things can be helpful. It doesn't solve the problem, but it helps us to love one another well. It's back to that Romans 14 thing, right? The one group of Christians saying they just didn't feel free to eat that meat. And the other saying, what is your problem? And Paul's advice was, don't judge, don't condemn. Don't look down your noses at those who are hung up in your view. Don't judge and dismiss as not spiritual those who have freedom in areas you don't. It's the same kind of thing again. It's back to these filters. So what I'm going to do now is leave this screen and bring up another one. I don't want to take you to a website where we can look in some detail at these two views. So here we are. Bear with me a moment. Excellent. All right. What we have right here, this is from a website, um, Faith and Science Teaching. Fast Faith and Science Teaching. This is from a website that's on this research sheet you're going to get. It was a three-year project funded by the Templeton Foundation uh, a few years back that I was involved with a team of 12 Christian school teachers, uh, three Bible teachers, eight science teachers from Christian schools from across the country. And we were putting together um, a website to produce some sort of example units on how to teach science from a Christian perspective. And this unit on Christian views of creation is one that I had developed over the years teaching my own classes and so we worked on this. So what you're seeing here is some stuff that I put together and have used for years with my classes that was afterwards improved. So what you're looking at here is better than what I was using. It was improved by the rest of the team. But the, the link to this website is on that resource sheet in case you want to investigate further. So what we're going to do is take a look at this. See if you can guess what you think ought to go in these blanks. Yes or no, yes or no, yes or no for these first questions. And I'll just tell you as we go along, we'll just keep clipping along. There isn't time to unpack them at length, but you'll see these things operating that we've been talking about. <clears throat> and you'll see how the old earth creation view really is an interesting blend of these other two. All right. So first of all, did God create everything? Absolutely. All three of them would say, yes, amen, please. You know, the evolutionary creationists would say, please hear me on this. Yes. We're not saying God's not the creator. We think Evolution is a process he used, and it wouldn't work at all if he wasn't a genius. Now, you may not buy that at all, and that's fine, as I said, but you can see your Christian brothers and sisters speaking from their love for Jesus in that. That's kind of the point, not are they right. It's are they doing what you're trying to do, honor God's word and God's world, take them both seriously, figure out what he's doing, honor him in it, and the answer is yes, yes, yes. So did God create everything? Yes, across the board. Does creation show God's greatness? Yes, across the board. His power here, speak and things appear more or less fully formed. Amazing. If you'd seen it happen, I mean, God's power for sure. How about over here? Process, going, choreographing a dance that lasts billions of years so that everything works out just right and here we are. Yeah, um, I'd like to think that God 
who's in charge of my own life can do that in nature. So either way, God's greatness. Is the Bible the word of God and trustworthy? Yes, yes, and yes. They disagree about how to understand parts of it, but they don't disagree that it's the word of God and it's absolutely trustworthy. Are humans created in God's image? Yes. Nobody claims we're an accident. That one is here. These are four things that these, well, these three, these were added by the team after I had submitted this. And um, I didn't have these in my sheets for my students because we talked about this together in class. But I'm really glad they added them because it's important for us to see in a chart like this that we're all agreeing about these key things from the get-go. Those are the primary issues. Now we get into the secondary issues down here. And again, I'm going to ask you for just a moment, very brief this time, just close your eyes if you need to. As I read this next one, one of these positions, I'm guessing, is probably going to sound preposterous to some of you. It might be any of them. It might be this one, or it might be this one. It probably won't be this one because it's kind of a blend. It's sort of in the middle. But just pray, would you? Putting legs on what we said earlier. We want to honor Jesus in this. It's him we love, and we love each other. Pray that God would help you to see how, to step into the shoes of somebody, a Christian brother or sister, who's really trying to honor God in this, doing their best, and see what they might mean when they say this, why they might say it. A high view of Scripture, a high view of how God's revealed himself in nature and Scripture, um, whatever it is. Pray for grace, especially as you read these, because it might jar you. Amen. So, young earth creationists would say, Genesis 1 is history. And day means what day ought to mean, a normal 24-hour day. Okay, easy enough. Old earth creationists would say, yes, Genesis 1 is history. It's telling us what happened, and at least some hints as to, well, it's telling us what happened, and how God did it, maybe they say no evolution or very little, uh, but it's not really telling us when. So they say a day means a period of time. And by that, they mean a longer period of time than 24 hours. Now, they do have biblical warrant for this. The Hebrew word yom, or day, yom kippur, day of atonement, um, the Hebrew holiday. The word yom can mean a 24-hour day. It can also mean a longer period of time. We use it the same way in English. Um, you know, in my grandfather's day, in Lincoln's day, we don't mean a day there. We mean a period of time. And the same thing's true with Hebrew. So the old earth creationists would say we are taking it literally. A literal meaning of yom is a period of time. It doesn't have to be 24 hours. Young earth creationists would say, oh, you're really stretching the definition of, liter of literal there. And I think I probably would agree with them. But um, the point is, put yourself in the shoes of the person saying this. They're trying to honor God's word. They're trying to see what God is trying to say. How would the original hearers have heard this? And then the evolutionary creationists would say, a little more complicated, harder to explain, those books and the resource pages will really help you with this if you want to uh, investigate this further. If you just can't see how they could be coming at this, then you will after looking at some of those resources. Again, you might not agree, but they're evangelicals talking your language, and they'll explain why they're coming at this thing the way they do. So they'd say Genesis 1 is more than history, more than history. It's God's word, and it teaches vital truth about how, uh, about God and about people. But its main purpose is not to teach about history, 
It's not to teach about how or when these kinds of things happen. Its main purpose is not to teach details of history or science. It's just not its purpose. That wasn't what the original hearers were interested in. Now, let me give you an example. This is a sloppy example. Uh, and Vic, I'm saying this partly for Vic's benefit, others of you with New Testament theology background. It's a sloppy example, but it's helpful. Think of Jesus' parables. Are they the word of God? Well, of course. I mean, what a silly thing. Are they history? Well, no, but that's a parable. Exactly. Now, we're, these folks, the evolutionary creationists, they're not saying Genesis 1's parable. But what they're trying to say is something that gives the same sort of feel. The word of God, very much, but stated in a certain way, couched in a certain kind of literature, that the main thrust of it was not the details to the original hearers. The main thrust was the point of the story. Like I said, correcting all the lousy theology of the cultures around them, the pagan cultures around them. So you think of that, it might be helpful. I think with my students, Comparing them to Jesus' parables helps because we all know Jesus' parables are the word of God, and yet, well, no, they're not historical. Or are they? You know, some of them don't say they're parables. Were some of those true stories? You know, what about the uh, Good Samaritan? Is that a true story? Could have been. We don't know. Does it matter? No. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And so I'll leave it at that. Doesn't prove anything, mind you. Purpose of this session tonight is not to convince you of anything or change your view. It's to help you see why Christians disagree and a little bit about how, and, and hopefully to enable you, help you along the way to loving your neighbor well in this area. And certainly if you've always thought that uh, Genesis 1, there was only one way to read it, um, and if you read it any other way, you couldn't be a Christian, that I'm suggesting is certainly not true. But you'll have to decide how it ought to be read, but there are Christians reading it lots of different ways. And believing they're honoring God in doing it and trying very hard to do that. So how old is the earth? Young earth creationists would say about 10,000 years. And also they would say the universe is about the same, about 10,000 years. Universe and the earth created in the same six-day week. That makes sense. The old earth creationists would say, no, the scientific evidence is just overwhelming here. About four and a half billion years uh, for the earth and about 13.8 billion, about 14 billion years for the universe. And then the evolutionary creationists would agree with that. Those are the standard um, datings for the universe and the solar system. The solar system being about, what, a third of the age of the entire universe. Why would God take so long? That's a question that comes up now and then. And it's a good one. Um, and there are answers in some of the resources that are on that sheet. And, of course, if you want to bring those up as questions later. So quickly through the rest of these, did God use miracles or natural processes to create the stars and planets? Young Earth creationists, miracles. Old Earth creationists, natural processes, God's genius, and the same with evolutionary creationists, natural processes. Did God use miracles or natural processes to create the basic kinds of living things, like the first birds, first cells, first humans? Young Earth creationists and old Earth creationists would say that's where God stepped in and messed with things. That's where God did miracles. And the evolutionary creationists say God designed a universe that would do what he wanted to do under his supervision and guidance, and that was create life that could know him, that's us, and it didn't need for him to step in. He didn't need, the machine was so well designed, he didn't need to step in and kick it every now and then to get it to do what he wanted. So you can see how it's God's greatness. Doesn't mean it's true. It's God's greatness over here as well. Either way, God is great. Did God use miracles or natural processes to make different varieties 
of the same basic kind of living thing. Little differences like Eastern and Western bluebirds or African and Indian elephants. And there's where it gets interesting. All three groups agree natural processes. So everyone, including the young earth creationists, are comfortable with what you call very low levels of evolution. They call it microevolution often, or just want to use the word adaptation, not use the E word at all. Um, and that's fair. But all of us agree that natural processes in God's genius and his skillful hand have created changes in nature. It's a question of how far those changes can go. That's the question. The old earth creationists and the young earth creationists both think there are limits on how far these lower level changes can take something. You're not going to get a whole completely new kind of thing. And the evolutionary creationists say, God's clever enough to make it do that. And he has. And then did the universe begin with the big bang? Um, big bang comes up and everybody's thinking about this stuff. And the young earth creationists say, no, there's not enough time. Certainly if you only have a 6,000 year old earth, uh, not nearly enough time, this evolutionary, uh, the big bang process is really long and slow. And the old earth creationists would say yes. And so would the evolutionary creationists. And then the last things here, should we trust the very old ages that radioactive dating give us? And older, young earth creationists say no. Both of the others say yes. Did Noah's flood reshape the earth's surface, burying most of the fossils? Almost all of them, but you never want to say all because there are some since Noah's flood, the young earth creationists would say. And they would say, yes, that's where how the flood, that's how the fossils got buried in a relatively young earth. It looks old, but it isn't. The old earth creationists and both the evolutionary creationists say no. There's just too much evidence that that didn't happen. Um, and I can unpack some of that evidence for you if you want. But it's again, it's not really the point. The point is that they're all trying to interpret the evidence we see in nature well. And we're trying to do it in ways that are consistent with what we see the Bible teaching. And we're coming in different positions on that. All trying to honor God all trying to love Jesus well, and we need to love one another well in, in the process and not let our discussions get too heated, too emotional. Um, and that's it's so easy to say. I can sit here smiling and make it sound like that's just a piece of cake, and we all know it's not. But that's what Jesus has called us to. So I'm going to take this screen off, and we have time for some questions. Appreciate your listening so faithfully there. When you get that resource sheet, by the way, that, that table I just showed you is on there. There is a version of it that you'll see on the resource sheet that has all the blanks filled in. So if you're feeling like, I wish we'd written those things down, I'm never going to remember, it's on that resource sheet. So I haven't left you hanging in any of these things. You should have plenty of, uh, plenty of ways to get the info that you need. All right. Thank you so much, Mark. This was great. Um, we're going to uh, take some questions, and we've, we've had some of them written in, but uh, if you haven't had a chance to write in a question, please feel free to do that. Um, let me just uh, start by asking a question that somebody had here. Um, there, was some, there was a question about the, the days. You mentioned the yom, the Hebrew word yom. Um, mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about how the old earth creationists or the, those who believe in um, evolution and are, are Christians, how do they view that word day and how do they work that out that, um, you know, the Genesis passage talks about creation happening in six days? Yeah, that's a great question. So the simple, uh, simplest way to do it is to compare the young earth creationists and the old earth creationists, because they're the ones who talk the most about that word. 
you'll find evolutionary creationists take a various number of different approaches to Genesis. And some of them that would say, it's not really about that word at all. They would agree. Some of them, some of the evolutionary creationists would say, yeah, it means 24 hours in that passage. That's not the point. That wasn't the point of the story. So we'll just stick to the old earth creationists and the young earth creationists. The young earth creationists would say, well, yom obviously can mean a 24 hour day, you know, a regular old day. So what are the evidences in Genesis 1 that it might? Well, they'd say, and they have very good points here, um, the days are numbered, first day, second day, third day. I mean, that's a little unusual to find that without it meaning a regular day. And perhaps even um, more so, it's not just that they're numbered. You've got evening and morning each day. So it sure sounds like they're trying to communicate a regular day. The old earth creationists will come along and say, well, look at Genesis 2. I think it's verse 4. Um, in Genesis 2, early on in the chapter, it tells the creation story again. We've got two creation stories in Genesis, one in chapter 1 and gen- one in chapter 2. There are differences between them. Uh, you can harmonize them, uh, and that's a, I'm not implying that you can't. So please, if you, if you feel like those are fighting words already, by just saying there are two accounts, uh, don't feel that way. It, it, they can be made into one account, one simply expanding on the other. Uh, many theologians think they're two separate accounts and they're telling the story in slightly different ways for different reasons and all that. But the point is you have the creation story retold in chapter two. And it says uh, early on, uh, well, actually, let me read it. Um, Let me get my Bible. I'm going to grab my Bible from behind me. Okay. And while he does that, Mark, I'm going to, I'm going to make it so that we can see one another again. Um, in case people would like to see see the others as we're dealing it's with the questions. Fun to, it's fun okay. to see the group, yes. Okay, here we go. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Yes, I was right about the verse. And it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. You see that refrain throughout Genesis a number of times when it starts a new story, a different part of the family line, you know, Abraham and whatnot. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the Hebrew there says in the day they were created. The word yom is there. The NIV kind of dodges it by just putting when in there. But I think if you look at King James, it might even say something like in the day. So the Old Earth creationists will say, well, look, there in Genesis 2-4, it's being used in the way we're talking about. Obviously, it's not, even if you say those were six 24-hour days in Genesis 1, to say in the day they were created, it wasn't one day, it was six. So, So that's sort of a... Uh, a thumbnail sketch of where the disagreement comes in. They're both saying, look, we're taking this seriously. And by that, they kind of mean literally. Um, and we don't think it means 24 hours. But the young earth creationists have good points about the structure of the first chapter. It's sort of, on first reading, at least to us Westerners, it sounds like a 24-hour day. But it's important to be humble about that. Uh, what it looks like on a first reading to us in English um, in the 21st century in the West, we cannot assume that's what the early readers would have heard. Um, it might be. We just can't assume it. Like, this is so obvious. How could anybody not see this? Okay, okay great. And uh, another thing that I, I think um, we've noticed, we talked about this a little bit in our pre-meeting with Pastor Trevor, um, is what day the sun is created, which is the thing that allows us to have 24-hour days, right? Um, yes. And um, why don't you just talk briefly about that before we move on? Yeah, that's another good point. Um, it's another one of these little, you know, one thing to remember about these three views 
And this is true of a lot of things, political and scientific and economic theories and theories about how to raise your children. It's true of a lot of the important things in life. None of these are without their challenges. There is no one view that if you just study it hard enough, there will be no questions left. If you study it hard enough, there will be questions left. I don't know of a scientific theory that's ever been accepted in the history of science that wasn't accepted with some questions still remaining. It's just that the evidence was overwhelmingly strong and it explains so many things so well that the majority of scientists said, okay, this looks like the closest thing to the truth we're going to get on this for now. There's still this puzzling question. And sometimes later that leads to breakthroughs and new things. And sometimes it doesn't. It's just a hole that gets plugged. It's the same with these views. So one of the troubling things about Genesis chapter one with trying to take that literally, which the young earth creationists want to do very much, um, and I respect them for it, is what do you do with the fact that you have evening and morning the first day and the second day and the third day when the sun isn't created until the fourth day? And there are answers that they're given to that, but you have to work hard to do it. You know what I'm saying? All these views, there are certain things that come up that you can explain the questions, but you have to work so hard to do it that it at least ought to give you pause. It ought to at least make you humble about the fact that you don't have it all figured out. There are mysteries here, even if you're still convinced your view is the right one. Okay. Um, we had a question uh, from Colleen about whether uh, scientists believe that carbon dating is accurate. Most scientists do. The young earth creationists don't, obviously, if, if, and carbon dating is sometimes used as sort of a, a simple um, shorthand way to refer to radioactive dating in general. Carbon dating will let you date things like uh, mummies and, you know, campfires from 10,000 years ago. But when you get to things that are millions and billions of years old, carbon dating doesn't work because the carbon-14, which is the radioactive material, it decays too quickly. There's not enough of it left. And so you use other things like uranium and whatnot. Um, so radioactive dating in general is what's used for these things. That's where we get that 4.6, that number for the age of the earth. Um, it's from radioactive dating of rocks. It, surprisingly, interestingly, moon rocks, largely. We have some rocks on earth that date to close to that age, but not quite because erosion and things tends to tear things up on the surface of the earth. Most scientists accept it. Um, the young earth creationists cannot. Now, I don't mean to say that cannot, as in they're all closing their eyes and saying, you know, I'm not going to be confused by the facts. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying that if they were to accept it, obviously it'd have to be in their view because those dates make the earth much, much millions of times older than they think. And they have some arguments for why they don't hold to it. It doesn't convince most scientists. Um, they'll say some things like this. I'm trying to think of the best way to convince this radically. It's another whole conversation, of course. And there are things you can read about it. My email is also on that resource sheet. Please feel free if you've got specific questions and you want a book on that question, there might be something out there I could aim you to and research more. But a simple way to say it might be this. One argument the young earth creationists will make is, um, how do we know that before Noah's flood, for example, when so many things changed about the earth, how do we know that the rate of radioactive decay, these radioactive materials decay, fade away, radioactive uranium turns into lead, for example. Um, how do we know that the speed with which that happens was different way back then? I mean, we can go into the lab now and measure the speed that uranium changes into lead, and we can use it like a clock if, I mean, when this was first discovered, radioactivity 100 or so years ago, if the rate is steady, you could use it like a clock. 
if you knew you had a sample that was all uranium to start with, and now there's a certain amount of lead in it, and you know how quickly it's changing into lead, you can say, oh, well, it must have been changing for this long. That's how this works, basically. And the unearthed creationists say, whoa, whoa, there's a big assumption there, and that is the rate's always been the same. What if it was really different way back when? And that has been studied, um, and scientists have done all kinds of work, especially early on when they thought, well, could this be a clock? Well, they knew it wouldn't work if the rate would change, so they subject it to high temperatures and low temperatures and high pressures, things you might encounter deep in the earth or out in outer space, you know, low temperatures and low pressures, and um, nothing changes the rate of radioactive decay in any appreciable amount at all that we've found yet. Um, it's happening in the nucleus of the atom, which is so sheltered from what's happening outside the atom that's just really resistant to change. And there are different methods of radioactive dating different radioactive materials decay at different rates. I already mentioned carbon-14 decays kind of quickly. Uranium much more slowly. Uh, takes billions of years for uranium to decay away and thousands of carbon-14. So what if you had a meteorite, let's say, and you could subject it to three, two or three or even four different methods of radioactive dating, looking at different radioactive elements and their daughter products, like the lead would be for uranium, the daughter product that it decays into. What if you could do that? Look at each one separately. Let's look at the uranium and lead and see what kind of age that gives us. Then let's look at something else in there, rubidium or something, and see what that gives us. And let those dates better line up if this is reliable. Well, they almost always do line up. Sometimes they don't, Sometimes, but there are explanations for that. Sometimes the sample's been contaminated, et cetera, et cetera. But generally speaking, dates match. So scientists, most scientists say, look, the evidence is just overwhelming, that this is trustworthy, the dates are what they are, um, and the young earth creationists continue to do research to try to see if they can find some holes in that reasoning, and they think they have found some, but they aren't convincing most scientists yet. They might, you know, it could be that they're right, and if they are right, then eventually we're going to find out. And I know some young earth creationists who say that very thing. They say, I know the scientific evidence supporting my view at this point is not as strong as I'd like, but I'm just convinced the Bible says this is true, that the earth is young. And therefore, if it's true, then I expect the science eventually will catch up with it. And some of these people are scientists. I want to do research to move that project ahead. Well, that's admirable. Um, in the, they're in the minority right now, the scientists who hold that view, but if they're right, we'll find out one day. At the moment, most scientists don't think they're right. They're just not convinced yet by the arguments. Okay, great. Thanks, uh, Mark. And there was a question um, that I think probably a lot of people are curious about. What about dinosaurs? That was from Cyril. Yes, yes great question. Um, the young earth creationists would say dinosaurs were created on day six. All the, all the land animals, basically, the same day that Adam and Eve were created, too. And so they were with Adam and Eve. Now, <laughs> it conjures up visions of Jurassic Park, right? You wouldn't necessarily want to be in the Garden of Eden with the T-Rex. But before Adam and Eve's fall, they would say, you didn't have predation and this kind of stuff going on. These dinosaurs would not have been eating you. But that gets to be a whole other conversation, too. It's fascinating. But they would say the dinosaurs were created on day six. And the reason they're not here now, they were on the ark. You wouldn't have to have full-size dinosaurs on the ark. Uh, if they were like a lot of reptiles are today, they mature long before they stop growing. Unlike us, we tend to stop growing pretty early on. A lot of reptiles don't. It's called indeterminate growth. They just keep growing. 
slows down, but they keep growing. So if the dinosaurs are like that, maybe they were sexually mature when they were much smaller and you wouldn't have to have a full size, you know, Diplodocus on the, on the ark. Um, after the flood, the climate on the earth, they would say was very different. Conditions were very different. And a lot of things went extinct, including the dinosaurs. Unless perhaps, who knows, they, they might hold out hope that one day we might discover dinosaurs someplace. I mean, it wouldn't, if we did, that would be really interesting for their view. They'd be jumping up and down saying, see, we told you. Um, yeah, so that's a simple answer. And of course, the other two views, old earth creationists and the evolutionary creationists would say the dinosaurs died out about 65 million years ago. And they would say that's one reason we never, ever, 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 so far, find their fossils with human fossils. So if you think about it, if Noah's flood buried all the fossils, you'd expect somewhere sooner or later, you'd find some dinosaur fossils jumbled up with human fossils that all drowned in the flood and were buried in those sediments. Um, and there are arguments the young earth creationists will make to explain why they don't expect to find that. They probably didn't live in the same places. But again, that's an example of where you have to work a little hard to explain that. And there are things the evolutionists have to work a little hard to explain. Um, it cuts both ways. Okay, so we have a question from Ryan asking, probably what a lot of people are wondering, is which of the three views do you take? <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's interesting when my students ask me that question, generally early on in this unit, I will say, tell you what, I'm not going to tell you yet, because if I tell you, you're going to stop thinking, especially when you're talking about um, older high school students would not do that. They'd still do their own thinking. But most of the time, the units I've taught this have been in eighth and ninth grade. And at that age, some of them might, you know, you're such an authority figure, you have to always take that very seriously and be careful. But, um, but I'll let you know a little bit of my own history. This is kind of how it's worked for me. I became a Christian when I was in high school. I wasn't brought up in a Christian family. So I got converted in the 70s in the Jesus movement. Some of you that are older remember those days. It's a very interesting time. Um, I got converted and I had just, I always loved science. I had always just assumed the evolutionary scenario. Never, I was never taught anything different. And, but I went off to Christian college, uh, a little Christian college where they were strongly young earth creationists. And so the books I was reading and the notes I was taking in my Bible, which I still have, the notes in my Bible in Genesis 1 as to why those are 24-hour days, some of that stuff I shared with you, those notes are in the margin of my Bible from way back then. Uh, so I, I became a young earth creationist. I was taught, now this is a little unfortunate. I'm really grateful for the college I went to that it taught me a very serious, it gave me a very serious view of the Bible. Um, it made me a reader of the Bible a lot. I try to read it a lot. Um, somebody challenged me years and years ago to read the whole thing. Read the whole thing? Are you kidding? Well, yeah, read the whole thing. Just read a chapter or two a day, and eventually you're through the whole thing. And it's amazing what this does for you. I got a lot of that from that college. Um, and so I'm grateful for that. But one of the things that wasn't so helpful was that I was given the impression that young earth creationism was the only view you could hold if you were a Christian and you believed the Bible. That was it. It took me years to work through that. Um, as I began to study more science and study my Bible, I went, I went to seminary as well at that same place. Didn't finish seminary. I did two years of a three-year Master of Divinity program and then started teaching at Christian school. Loved it, so I didn't finish the Master of Divinity. But they gave me the tools. I remember once opening my Bible in Hebrew as I was struggling with this stuff. I said, I'm going to read Genesis 1 in Hebrew and see if something jumps out at me. And I read Genesis 1 in Hebrew, and I put the Bible down. I thought, oh, no, this is not as clear as I'd been taught. 
<laughs> so eventually I, I just began to ask questions. Um, I met somebody whom I deeply respected who had a doctorate in geology and a seminary degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. So he knew more Bible and more science than I did. Godly man that I taught with in Pennsylvania for years. I, wa- I watched him teach his science classes in Christian school, and he was doing a better job of connecting faith and learning than I ever did. So there was no way I could marginalize him, that, that he wasn't, he clearly wasn't a young earth creationist. I knew he didn't hold to all the stuff I did. I never tried to pigeonhole him, but I could tell he didn't. And yet I couldn't marginalize him. I couldn't say, well, he doesn't know the Bible that well, because he did. And he didn't know the science that well, because he did. And well, he's just not that godly, because he was. And so that began me thinking. And eventually I sort of became an old earth creationist. I just sort of said, all right, I don't see the Bible requiring that the young earth be young. I can see how you read it as the earth being young, but I don't see it as required. I can see ways to honor the text without that. And it just seems the scientific evidence is overwhelming. And so I kind of said, all right, I'm not really convinced it's young anymore. I'm willing to be convinced back, but at the moment I'm not. I still had serious reservations about evolution. But again, working my master's degree, taking things like genetics, (laughs) I took a course in evolution. I thought, I want to hear this from the, I want to hear this from the people who hold the view. So I took a course in evolution Um, And so I did more reading, more study. And the more I thought about it, the more science I learned, the more I thought, you know, these arguments for evolution are pretty strong, which by the way, as I've said, some young earth creationists I've read say the same thing. The arguments are very strong, they say. This idea that evolution doesn't have any evidence for it is is nonsense. These are young earth creationists who will say this. Now, I don't know that most young earth creationists would say that, but some will. Um, The ones I'm thinking of have PhDs, and one of them has a PhD in evolutionary biology. And he's a young earth creationist. So there's not, there's not, nobody's an idiot in any of these views. People have their training. We just disagree. Well, anyway, I eventually got to the point where I was quite comfortable with evolutionary creationism. So that's how I describe it now to folks. I'm comfortable with that view. Um, I don't think the sun rises or sets on it, but I'm comfortable with it. it explains more things in both the Bible and the science more easily for me. It takes two, It takes me more work to defend the other two views than that one at the moment, but that doesn't mean it's right. I have a sneaky feeling we're maybe all a little wrong about something, and we're going to find out. It's like the wise pastor once said, I know my theology is wrong. I just don't know where. Well, kind of like that. So okay. thank you for asking. <laughs> So we're almost out of time. Um, one person asked, uh, the Canatellas asked about whether Darwin was an atheist. And um, uh, maybe you can just touch on, I think really the question might be, does evolution, if you believe in the theory of evolution, does that connect somehow with atheism? And you really said that it, it doesn't. So um, we saw that yeah. clearly. Um, I want to just ask another question. Um, uh, Let's see here. Um, Joanne Matheson says, none of this is trivial, no matter how, what's your viewpoint. But is it or is it not true that the Bible is inerrant? If that's not true, would, you, would it not raise questions about everything in the Bible? So how do you deal with that question about if we're looking at Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3 a little differently, does that uh, put the, the inerrancy of the Bible at risk? It's an excellent, excellent Excellent question. Um, And it's not going to be an easy one to navigate it as you start thinking about these things. I tell my students, 
because remember my students are, are younger, some of them middle school and then high school. And I tell them, if you haven't started to question your faith yet, you probably will. If you never ask any questions, that doesn't mean you have to agonize, but if you never ask any questions, it's just not realistic. You're going to question some things. So, so be ready and don't let that throw you. Um, I had serious doubts about my faith after I became a Christian at one point, And I remember praying essentially that God, you're, you can take care of me through this if you're real. <laughs> and that, and that was true. Um, you just got to give God time. So it can take time to navigate this, but it's a really, really good question. There are very good reasons to believe that scripture contains lots of different kinds of literature. For example, Jesus parables. So we've already sort of crossed that bridge of saying that we need to read the different parts of the Bible differently and understand how was God trying to communicate to the original hearers. It's not, this is very important. I think the devil will whisper in our ear something like this. And sometimes we don't realize that's what's going on. It becomes an assumption. We don't know it's in the back of our minds bothering us. Don't start with an assumption that what we're trying to do is find some reason to make the Bible say what we want it to. That's not the point. Uh, that's very important. It's an easy way to misunderstand people in these different views, too, is to think, oh, they're just trying to make the Bible say what they want. Those young earth creationists just want to be hyper-literal so they don't have to think about stuff. For those evolutionary creationists, they just want to fit in with their scientific colleagues. So, of course, they want to be, find a way to explain the Bible away. That's not what's happening with these people. That doesn't mean nobody could do that. <laughs> there are probably people walking around who are doing all that. I mean, we're all frail, right, and flawed. But that's not what's driving us. We want to know what God is saying because it gives life. There's very different kinds of literature in Genesis, um, and there's lots of things you can read that will walk you through this. As a matter of fact, email me. I mean, there's a whole book on evangelicals kind of arguing about that very thing, about inerrancy. What do you mean about inerrancy? There's different ways to define it. We all say it's the word of God. It can't be trusted. God is telling us the truth. By inerrancy, do you mean literal? But none of us takes the whole Bible literally, Jesus' parables, for example. I mean, I keep coming back to that because it's so familiar, but there are lots of others. And so, so what are we going to do with that? Well, we're going to wrestle with it a little bit, but just this one thought, if it's encouraging. Genesis was written long after the events, right? If Moses wrote Genesis, which is generally assumed Moses is the author, theologians aren't sure about that either because he never really signs the book, right? But that's okay. It, it, let's just say Moses wrote it then that was a long time after the events. Did God dictate those things to him? Did it, how did, we don't know how he gave Moses that revelation. But the accounts of Jesus' resurrection, those are written by eyewitnesses. And it even mentions in, in the New Testament that at the time some of those accounts were written, there were 500 people still alive who had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Those people could have jumped up and down and said, hey, this is all fabrication, this never happened. And here the apostles, with the exception perhaps of John, are all martyred for a story they made up. Not likely. Not likely. I find that a stretch. Hard to believe. Um, so there are plenty of reasons, just many, many good reasons, not to feel like one should throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, that's what the devil, our, our enemy, is real. That's what he'd love for us to do. It's the easy answer. But Life's important questions don't always have easy answers. Sometimes the main part of the answer is easy, like, yes, there is a God and it's not me. Jesus did rise from the dead. So, so we're okay, but these are really good questions you're asking. And it, and it can be hard and it can be unsettling, and that's all right. We've all 
all of us who've been Christians for a long time or have wrestled with these issues. Sometimes you're a Christian for a long time before you wrestle with it. We've all been through it. Um, the Holy Spirit will take care of you. Yeah. yeah. And I, um, I need to just mention what my husband, uh, Vic Copan mentioned, and I think it's a good point. Um, he said, he tells his students at Palm Beach Atlantic, you know, the Bible is inspired, but our interpretation is not inspired. So we may have, misunderstood something and interpreted it incorrectly so that's maybe a good thing for all of us to uh, land on and maybe approach this with more humility so thank you so so much uh i just am so grateful for you to be speaking to us tonight let's all give mark a hand all right my pleasure thank you very much this was really, really helpful. And Mark mentioned the handout. What we'll probably do is post that on the um, Hope University page along with the video. So you'll be able to get that handout that way. And um, there's a lot of great information there. And you can go for more uh, help there. And Mark is willing to answer your questions even if you want to email him. So thanks again, Mark. And everyone, don't forget about Hope University next week. We hope that you'll join us again. These are important questions, and for us at Committee of Hope, the big thing is we don't want to put any barriers between uh, any person in the gospel. And so I really appreciate your, your help with that. So, all right. Good night, everybody. Hope you have a good one, and thanks for joining us tonight.